on Friday evening, uh, Friday afternoon rather, I was at home watching television like a lot of you and following the, the headlines and like everybody else probably, I felt sick to my stomach at what was being reported about being in Connecticut. And I texted Paul Rasmussen, who's one of the pastors at Highland Park Methodist, and I said, are you going to change what you're going to preach on on Sunday? And he called me back and said, my first thought is no, I'll try to incorporate in what has happened into my sermon. And I thought that made sense to me. And then last night about 10.30 p.m., he texted me and said, are you still, are you still up? And uh, I said, I'm still up, although I'm trying to go to sleep. People aren't texting me in the middle of the night. And uh, I called him, and uh, he said, you know, I've been thinking, I think I am going to switch what I want to preach on. And I thought, I want to switch what I want to preach on, too. Something about the news yesterday evening that all the people who were, all the children who were killed were in first grade, just really wasn't, was stuck with me in my gut. Death is all around us. We hear it all the time. In fact, probably we get too used to it. But something about these little children just really stuck with me. And so I chucked out what I was going to preach on. I'll preach on it next week. And I decided to preach on something different. Maybe you're not in the same place I am. Maybe you're in a different place. But for me, I, I thought I needed to talk through uh, what happened uh, in Newtown, Connecticut on Sunday morning. And I want to use a, a passage. Uh, it's a Christmas passage in the scriptures. It's not the kind of passage we often read because it doesn't make us feel good. It's pretty ugly and pretty serious. It's here in Matthew chapter 2. It happens after the wise men come. And we're familiar with that story. We're less familiar with this next part of the story. Matthew chapter 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. And then they quote, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a shepherd who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child, and as soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. And after they had heard the king, they went on their own way. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. And then here's the part we don't read as often. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so it was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. And when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under. In accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. And then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. Another quotation. A voice is heard in Ramah. Weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. That's a haunting quotation from Jeremiah. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. 
Rachel reaping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. May, the, uh, may God bless the reading and hearing of the word today. Let's pray. Lord, take my words and speak through them this morning. And take our thoughts and think through them. And then take our hearts, Lord, and light them up with the fire of your joy. We ask this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. What I want to do today is talk through this scripture passage, which is, uh, I think, of all times particularly relevant this weekend. And I want to tell you why I believe even in the midst of ugly things, the faith proclaims joy, why it's appropriate for us to have joy. And I want to share with you really why I'm a Christian and, and why, why I've responded to the call of Jesus and have tried to take up my cross and follow him, as it says in the scriptures. Now, King Herod, we call King Herod the Great because he built a lot of projects, not because he was a great man. He was a very evil man. He was well-known in the ancient world for his cruelty. Caesar Augustus one time said, I would rather be a pig in Herod's household than one of his sons. And in Greek, there's a pun between the word pig and the word son. Josephus, an ancient historian who was Jewish, not a Christian, but who wrote a lot about the ancient world from whom we get uh, very interesting insights into the time of uh, Jesus in the first century. Josephus hated Herod and he made a point of cataloging lots of Herod's evils. One of the things we don't have in the historical record apart from the Gospel of Matthew is this idea that Herod went to the town of Bethlehem and killed the boys there. But scholars say that's not surprising because Bethlehem at this time was a very small town and perhaps at this time there would have been 20 little boys under the ages of uh, two. How relevant of all times, 20 little ones whom Herod decided to kill. In our culture, Christmas has become commercialized. We like to think of a, the idea of a perfect Christmas. We sing songs about uh, having there be a silent night. It's a beautiful carol, but that's an interesting phrase, I think, a silent night. Maybe you've seen this movie uh, called Talladega Nights about this race car driver called Ricky Bobby with Will Ferrell. It's a comedy. But there's a scene in there where Will Ferrell's character says, I like the baby Jesus because he's so sweet. And it's a funny scene, but I often have thought that really misses the point theologically. See, one of the things the scriptures tell us from the very beginning, Jesus wasn't born into a world where everything is silent, when everything was calm, and everything was good. He was born right into the world of violence and betrayal and murder. One of the reasons I'm a Christian, and I, if you're here today and you're exploring the faith, I just want, faith, I just want to prod you a little bit in this way. It's because I know nothing else in the world that gives as clear-eyed view of the real state of the world than the Christian gospel. See, one of the things we like to do, because often evil and suffering is so overwhelming in this world, is that we like to ignore it. And of all people who like to ignore evil and suffering, perhaps we in America are the best at it. Getting and spending, look, look what we do. We try to distract ourselves from the state of the world. The news on Friday has struck me deeply. I'm not really sure why. It's something about these little children. But I've also been reminded that there was lots of other people who died as a revolt of violence on Friday and yesterday. War and terrorism. There's people who are dying from hunger and preventable diseases. And yet for many of us, and I'm chief of sinners in this regard, for many of us, we try to ignore it. We like to keep things nice and neat and clean and antiseptic. But that doesn't really work. I don't know a whole lot about life, but I know enough to know that one of the things it means to live is to have suffering. And once you get to a certain age, I think suffering is inescapable. 
many of us in the congregation today have experienced it in some ways or the other. And so there's different philosophies or ways of thinking that just say, just, just, have, a, just have a good attitude. Just think positive. Just ignore that. Or just live for your own comforts. That's a big one in our culture. Just live for your own comforts. But it is only the message of the gospel that I believe that has a clear-eyed view of what the state of the world really is. Right after the birth of the Messiah, we have here in Matthew's gospel, in only the second chapter, a story of the massacre of little kids. Or as it's been known through church history, the slaughter of the innocents. You want to see some heart-wrenching pictures, Google that phrase this afternoon, the slaughter of the innocents. There are lots of great artists who have dedicated their art to showing that ugly picture. One of the reasons I'm a Christian and one of the reasons I believe that you should respond to the call of Christ too is because I know nothing else that looks at the world and calls it what it is. Any sorts of positive thinking, any sort of trying to make ourselves comfortable can't last because evil is a part of it. As it says in uh, the New Testament, one of the letters of Peter, the devil is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 10, the thief a metaphor for evil, for the evil one. The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. It doesn't take a whole lot of imagination to look around and see all the examples of theft and destruction and death. And one of the reasons I'm a Christian is because the gospel calls it as it is. From the very beginning of the story of the scriptures, way back in Genesis chapter 3, we see that the state of humankind is to turn away from God and to live in lies and deceit. In Genesis chapter 4, we have the first murder, the story of Cain murdering his brother Abel. And those haunting words, and Abel's blood screamed out from the ground. And the sad story of human history has been the story of the blood of innocent people crying out for justice. Year after year after year after century after century. Until the 20th century, which many people believe is the most violent and bloody and murderous century in human history. Who knows what this century will bring. So first, I'd just like to just push you a little bit today. Are you seeing the world as it really is? Or like so many of us, are we trying to medicate ourselves away from it? Insulate ourselves away from it? Amuse ourselves to death, to use another phrase. And this phrase here that I find so powerful, this quotation from the book of Jeremiah that Matthew uses, this is chapter 2, verse 18. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. One of the messages of the gospel is that death is wrong and we should hate it. Rachel refusing to be comforted because they are no more, weeping for her children. By quoting this, Matthew is trying to say, the fact that these 20 little ones were killed in Bethlehem should make us sick, and we shouldn't be okay with it. We shouldn't try to explain it away. I know some people who say this. Maybe you've heard these sorts of philosophies. If it weren't for the bad things in this world, we wouldn't know the good things. Now, there's some sense where, of course, that's true. It might cause us to be more thankful. I've talked about before how whenever I have a slight injury, it reminds me how much I take for granted when my body works well. And that's true, and I think we ought to be looking for opportunities for gratitude. However, I, the Christian faith utterly rejects the idea that it were 
<laughs> that God allows the bad things so we know about the good things. And I did a little thought experiment in my mind on Friday, which I think proves this. Like everybody else who's a parent, and those of us who aren't parents as well, I thought about little children on Friday, and I gave my little son a little hug and told him I loved him. But you know what? I gave him a hug on Thursday and told him I loved him that day too. I don't need the story of murdered little children to know what love is and to know what a precious gift children are. In the same way, we don't need there to be murder to know that life is good. We don't need there to be injustice to know that justice is good. We don't know there to be, need there to be betrayal to know that fidelity is good. And the Christian faith rejects that. Rachel refuses to be comforted because her children are no more. You may be here this morning and you're going through a deep, dark thing. You're, you're struggling with something and maybe some people have tried to tell you that you should just have a positive attitude or get over it. But the truth is, we can't just get over the things that happen in this world that are wrong. There's something fundamental to what it means to be a human to believe that death is wrong. Death is obviously particularly wrong for little ones, but I think it's wrong for older ones as well. I remember my grandfather, who was a great saint of the church. He was 93 when he died. He died peacefully, and we're grateful for it. But I'm not glad that he's dead. I don't think death is ever appropriate. In fact, of course, the stories of the scriptures is that death was never part of God's plan. Death is a result of human choice in some metaphysical way, which we don't totally understand. Death is not part of God's plan. So if you're here today and you're exploring the faith, can I just try another thought experiment at you? Where does the feeling and the emotion come from that's in your heart that says death is wrong? If we are just products of evolutionary chance, if God doesn't exist or somehow remote, way off and he set the earth spinning like a top, why would we care when death comes? Wouldn't it be part just of the nature of life? But I don't care who you are. I'd like to push a little bit. I don't believe whatever religion you say you subscribe to or philosophy that you do or don't, I don't believe it's possible to be a human on this earth and not have times in your life when you're confronted with death and you hate it. Because deep down in, there's a part of you that knows it's not right. So the first reason I'm a Christian, or the, at least the thing that brings me to exploring faith, is I know nothing else other than the gospel that has this clear-eyed view of sin and evil and death. The whole life of the ministry of Jesus is a story of him encountering death and injustice and suffering and evil. He's born in an, in a, in an out-of-the-way manger because there's no room for him in the inn. Very early on, he has to flee as a refugee to Egypt. Did you catch that? The angel tells Joseph, take the family and go and hide. An experience that so many millions of people in this world know what it's like to be a refugee. When it comes to the crucial point in his ministry, Jesus is betrayed from somebody right within the center circle of his friends. As Billy Abraham likes to say, that means there are no problem-free situations. Other than the gospel, what else has such a clear view of the state of reality? And of course, ultimately, the perfect one, the Messiah, through a miscarriage of justice, was murdered. And he suffered under Pontius Pilate, as we say in the Creed. So the first reason I'm a Christian and the first thing we're going to have to come to grips with as we talk through ugly things like what happened on Friday in Connecticut is that death is an inescapable part of this world 
and it's wrong, and we ought to hate it and resist easy answers. But there's more than that. The gospel doesn't start there, stop there, rather. The second thing I want to push you a little bit towards this morning is to think about what it means that in the very second chapter of this gospel of Matthew, in the story about the Messiah, Matthew includes this ugly story about Herod murdering these small boys in Bethlehem. What does it mean that when the Messiah came, he came as a peasant with no place to lay his head, as he says later on? What does it mean that he came poor? What does it mean that he lived as a refugee? What does it mean that he himself was betrayed and he himself suffered and ultimately was crucified? Many wise people in the last several days have said, it is not possible to address the question why, why things happen. I think they are exactly right. My dad has a phrase which I've adopted. He says, resist the urge to explain. And I think find that very helpful. We don't know why this happened in Connecticut or why the things that have happened to you have happened. I, I don't know. But I do know this. The message of the gospel is that we have a God who knows what it is to suffer, who became poor for our sakes, who had a laboring job with his hands, who went to Egypt as a refugee, who was betrayed by the government and was crucified. The second reason I'm a Christian, or one of the things that at least brings me to faith, is because what the faith teaches is that we have a God who is not remote, but right here, down here among us. The faith doesn't ever, doesn't ever answer the questions why. The faith talks about who. One of the names of the Messiah is Emmanuel, God with us. In fact, I'll talk about this some more on Christmas Eve, but I don't think that we need to know that God exists. Ultimately, I don't think that would make very much difference. I think we need to know that God is with us, that God knows what it's like to suffer. In the mystery of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we remember that the Father knows what it's like to lose his only Son. This is not some remote God who sits on a throne up in heaven. This is a God right here among us in the dirt, in the manure of the manger where Christ was born. And because we have a God who has that type of love, we know that even though we can't understand why suffering happens, we know that ultimately it doesn't have the final word. And that brings us to the third and final reason that I'm a Christian. And the reason that we can have hope and rejoice even this morning is because what happened after Jesus was crucified, dead, and buried. I believe it's an historical fact that Christ was raised from the dead. Although it seems preposterous and hard to understand, I believe any other alternative explanation is even harder to understand. Something happened back there in Jerusalem that caused the disciples who had fled in fear to come to faith, to preach the resurrection of Jesus regardless of what it caught them, cost them rather. And the third and final reason I'm a Christian is because of that resurrection. 
we talked about this several weeks ago when we were working through the Apostles' Creed, but the Jews at the time of Jesus believed that, that the resurrection would happen at the end of history. What nobody believed was that somebody in the middle of history would be raised to new life. And so then when it happened, it caused them to rethink everything they believed. And they came to this startling conclusion. They believed that what had happened in Jesus was an example of what is going to happen at the end of time. The Apostle Paul calls it the first fruits, like the early blossoms on the tree. In fact, Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, then there is new creation. The new creation at the end of time is beginning now. And so this morning, if I were talking to the people in Newtown who had lost their children, I, I wouldn't wish for them peace. I don't know how they could have peace this morning. But I would wish for them faith. See, the Christian faith doesn't just teach some sort of disembodied life after death. The Christian faith has always taught that there will be a general resurrection. That God is making a new heaven and a new earth. That's how the book of Revelation ends. What that means to, little, to parents who have lost their little ones is that their little ones are safe, hidden with Christ, but one day, all the sad things will be made untrue, and they'll be able to hold their little ones again in a bodily way, the way that they held them on Thursday evening. See, the resurrection means that the Christian church is right to proclaim that death doesn't have the final word, that ultimately God is going to remake all things, and somehow the story of the evil and death and suffering that so many of us experience will be part of the glory of the future in a way we don't understand. The risen Christ, after all, still has the scars on his hands. And yet, the resurrected life is a life of joy. And all the early people who met the risen Christ proclaimed joy. And so if you're here this morning, and you've either been wondering about this particular thing in Connecticut or just some of the ugliness of the world or struggling with other things or wondering about the faith. I'd like to talk to you and close this morning about faith, hope, and love. First, love. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Sometimes people say religion causes people to do ugly things. I think it depends on the manner of the God in which you believe. If we really believe in a God who so loved the world that he gave his only son, we will be ourselves consumed and transformed with that kind of love and we'll share sacrificial love with the world regardless of what it costs us. We'll be the kind of church and the kind of people that will do things for our enemies even when they don't deserve it because that's what God did. So I pray this morning that God would send me and send each of us that sort of love. A love that doesn't avoid the ugly things of the world, but goes right to it. And secondly, hope. Maybe you're here having something heavy on your heart. Certainly there are people who are in this world today. I'd wish for you hope. The sort of hope that does not disappoint, as the Apostle Paul says. The sort of hope that says, this feeling you have in your heart that things aren't the way they are is the true feeling. The sort of hope that says, one day God is going to come and set everything to right. And as it says in Revelation chapter 21, there will be no more crying, death, or pain. And there will be a new creation and a new earth. I pray for that kind of hope. 
Because with that kind of hope, we can look at any situation and walk right into it and not be overcome by it regardless of how ugly and evil it is because we know that death doesn't have the final word. In fact, death has been defeated by the victory of Christ on the cross. So I pray that we would be a people of hope, and I pray for hope this morning to the people of Newtown, Connecticut. And then finally, and this is what undergirds all of them, I I pray for faith. Faith is what we do when it doesn't make sense. Faith is what we grasp when we don't have all the answers. Faith is what makes us say, we're not going to take the easy answers, we're going to refuse to be comforted through pat answers, but we're still going to rejoice because we know that God has ultimately overcome all the ugly things. If there's one thing I could wish for you today, I'd wish for you faith. Regardless of the circumstances, the diagnosis, the divorce, the bankruptcies, the betrayals, that you would know that Christ is risen, that God has the last word, and that love ultimately wins. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, may each of us be gripped by that sort of faith, hope, and love today. Amen. And here's what I'd like us to do. I'd like to invite you to stand up. And we're going to affirm our faith in what's called the Apostles' Creed. If you've been here this fall, you know we worked through the Apostles' Creed. If you're here as a guest, this may seem strange to you. There may be some things in in here you don't understand. I'd like to suggest that each of these phrases is absolutely vital to who we are, particularly in times of suffering and questioning. We need to know that God created the world, that the world turned away from our creator, that God didn't give up on the world, that Christ was crucified, dead, and buried, that he was risen from the dead, and that ultimately we believe in the life everlasting and the resurrection of the body. You may be here today and not understand all these words and not agree with them all. In that case, maybe you can pray this as a prayer. Lord, I want to have this sort of faith. This is the historic faith of the Christian church. Let's say together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to the dead. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.